Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I have three items on the menu for you in this episode. First, a conversation with economist Melissa Carney about income inequality and the decision to drop out of high school. And then Wessel's economic update, focusing on productivity. And finally, in our new Metro Lens segment, Amy Liu talks about poverty and opportunity in Baltimore. Melissa, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, First, the facts as I know them. You are a professor of economics at the University of Maryland and a non-resident senior fellow here at Brookings. The paper is titled Income Inequality, Social Mobility, and the Decision to Drop Out of High School. Your co-author is Philip Levine, a professor of economics at Wellesley College. And the paper is for the Brookings Papers on Economic Policy, a biannual macroeconomics journal published here at Brookings. Very good. Now I'll need your help with the rest of the facts. Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, What is the question you sought to answer in this paper? What we were interested in figuring out is whether there's a consequence to growing up in a more or less equal society. And when I say society, what we're going to do is actually measure it at the level of state or city. But the idea is that we know as economists, there are lots of disadvantages for kids who are growing up in poor households. They're less likely to complete school, go to college, be successful in the labor market. But what we didn't know is whether being of lower income in a more unequal place conferred an additional disadvantage. And we were interested in this because if it did, it might suggest a way that inequality would lead to lower levels of upward mobility and in some sense perpetuate cycles of disadvantage. Melissa, can you talk about what is the top level finding or findings? The punchline is that uh, boys who grow up in economically disadvantaged homes are more likely to drop out of high school if they live in a state or a metropolitan statistical area, a city, that has a higher level of income inequality, right? So if, if you know, low-income kids uh, are more likely to drop out of high school than high-income kids, but conditional on being low-income, the kids who are growing up in states or cities characterized by high levels of Uh, lower tail income inequality, so a greater gap between the bottom and the middle, they're more likely to drop out of high school, Um, significantly so, six percentage points more likely. So this is a big deal. And um, to our mind, it's one of the first pieces of evidence suggesting that income inequality can exacerbate the consequences of growing up in a low-income home. Kids from low-income homes are more likely to drop out of school they're even more likely to drop out of school given aggregate level of income inequality around them. And the effect is more pronounced for boys than for girls. Yeah, interestingly, this finding is driven for boys. We don't see it for girls. This corresponds to now a number of studies that other economists have put out showing that or suggesting that boys are particularly susceptible to um, to growing up in economically disadvantaged homes or neighborhoods um, or cities. So other studies have found that boys in particular are more likely to have trouble in school, to have uh, worse labor market outcomes if they grow up in a place of disadvantage, of economic disadvantage. And so our finding now is, you know, another piece of evidence suggesting that for some reason, boys seem particularly susceptible to these negative or potentially harmful forces. But I don't want to overstate it too much, and I don't want to leave readers with the impression that, you know, girls are immune immune to the 
um, challenges of the economic situation around them. In previous work, my co-author Phil and I have found that low-income girls growing up in um, places characterized by this, you know, a larger level of income inequality is measured by this gap again between the bottom and the middle. They're more likely to become young unmarried mothers. So it might just be that girls are responding in different ways, and so we don't see the disadvantage showing up in in terms of their educational attainment, but we do see it on on other uh, measures. On that last topic you mentioned, uh, I hope listeners will go. And find Isabel Sawhill's book, Generation Unbound, uh, that deals with that phenomenon. Let's take a break here for Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. The economic indicators that get the most attention in the economy are the unemployment rate and the growth of the GDP, the nation's output of goods and services. These are kind of like taking the temperature or the pulse of the economy. They tell you how it's doing today. But just as doctors take other readings, cholesterol, blood pressure, EKGs, to assess a person's long-term health, economic physicians look at the growth in productivity, a measure of the amount of stuff that we produce for every hour of work. Productivity is the magic elixir of rising living standards, the reason we have so much more than our grandparents did, even though we don't work more hours than they did. For a couple of decades after World War II, productivity in American business grew rapidly, about 3% a year. Around 1973, it slowed to about 1.5% a year for reasons that economists are still arguing about. In the mid-90s, productivity growth perked up as the information technology revolution worked its way through the economy. For a decade, productivity rose at a rate of 3.2% a year. But since 2004, productivity has averaged only 1.3% a year. And lately, it's been even worse, only about one-half of a 1% a year. Now, differences of several tenths of a percentage point may sound small, but they aren't. At 3% productivity growth, living standards double every 25 years, roughly a single generation. At 1.5%, it takes 50 years or two generations for living standards to double. Now, some people, especially out in Silicon Valley, complain that the official statistics are just wrong, that really productivity growth isn't slowing, We're just measuring it poorly. They point to free services like Facebook and the growing importance of hard-to-measure sectors like healthcare. But a new analysis by three productivity experts presented recently at the Brookings Panel on Economic Activity demolishes the mismeasurement case. The productivity slowdown is not a statistical fiction, they say. It's real, which raises a big question. With all the innovation on smartphones, artificial intelligence and all that, all the promise of biotech, How come productivity growth has been so lousy? Well, we really don't know, but there are a few hypotheses. One is, it's the aftermath of the Great Recession, and productivity growth soon will perk up, especially if we can get our optimism back and get rid of unnecessary regulation. Two, U.S. businesses as a whole haven't been investing very much in new factories, new offices, new equipment, new technology, and that's holding back productivity growth. As the economy heals, they'll invest more, We'll get more output per worker, and things will be better. Three, it just takes time for new technologies to work their way through the economy because businesses have to change the way they work. Old ways have to fall away and be replaced by new ones. Just wait, this crowd says. The next productivity surge is just around the corner. But four, maybe we have to accept a tough reality, that the really big innovations are behind us, and we have to lower our sights settle for modest growth in productivity and slower improvements in living standards than we saw during the 20th century. Now, 
More productivity growth won't solve all our problems, but it will make our problems easier to solve. Problems like slow wage growth, the large and growing public debt, the anxiety that afflicts the American middle class. Now, if only we had a surefire way to increase the pace at which productivity grows, we'd be all set. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. And now, back to the interview with Melissa Carney. Let me make sure I understand and, and listeners understand these terms. There's inequality everywhere, across states, across metro areas, cities and towns. Some places are more unequal than other places, and there are disadvantaged people, disadvantaged kids in all of those places. So you're looking at the disadvantaged kids in the more unequal places as compared to the disadvantaged kids in the maybe slightly less unequal places. Right. And that's very important to point out because we know in aggregate correlations that places with high levels of income inequality also have lower rates of upward or social mobility. But there's all sorts of things that are different about places with high levels of income inequality. And so they might just have, you know, different kinds of households or families. And so we're going to look at the individual level and say, okay, let me look at comparable people living across these places and investigate how the aggregate economic conditions or situation where those individuals live affect individual level outcomes. So when we hear about income inequality, you know, usually in the, in the media, we often think about so the top 1%, the top 10%, even the top 20%, the rich versus everyone else, or maybe the rich versus the middle classes. But you, you've, you're taking a different frame of reference. That's right. So when we were thinking about conceptually, how might income inequality affect the uh, situation for kids growing up at the bottom of the income distribution, it seemed reasonable to, to take as a starting point the idea that the gap that would be most relevant for those kids is the gap between the bottom and the middle. So how far would they have to go to get to the middle class, right, as opposed to thinking about what's the gap between the bottom and the very top or what's going on at the tippy-tippy top, the top 1% that we hear so much about. Now, ultimately, this is an empirical question, and we check in the data which type of inequality seems most relevant to the outcomes for low-income kids. Um, but conceptually, it seemed to make the most sense that the lower tail inequality is measured by the gap in income between households at the middle of the distribution and the bottom, that that would be the most relevant. And indeed, that's what the data ultimately suggests as well. And why is that the most relevant? Don't uh, the poor kids aspire to be rich uh, someday at the highest level of income? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You're right that it doesn't have to be. I mean, kids at the bottom could be looking to the very, very top and taking their cues from there. Um, it, I mean, it, it looks like empirically that that's not the most relevant metric of inequality for, for kids at the bottom. Uh, let me go into, uh, I guess this is a methodological question. How do you, uh, as an economist, approach a study like this? Uh, we needed individual level data. And we needed that data to have a number of, a lot of information for us. We wanted to be able to measure kids' um, you know, economic circumstance in the house they were growing up in. So we needed some measure of socioeconomic status. We need a measure of educational attainment. Did they complete high school or not? We needed geographic identifiers to be able to say what state or county or city these kids live in. 
Um, and we need a rich set of demographics so that in our statistical analysis, we'd be able to control for background characteristics, gender, race, ethnicity, the types of things that we think um, have you know influences or, or effects on educational completion. And so fortunately, there are are five different nationally representative data sets that have all of this information available to us. And so we combine those five data sets and come up with a sample of 50,000 kids that we're going to be studying. And then we use census-level data to look at aggregate income inequality measures at the state level. And we combine that with a whole bunch of data we've compiled on state-level policies. So what's going on in the policy front and economic conditions. So we put all those data together uh, and we run you know, a bunch of statistical models of the kinds that economists typically run when we're interested in identifying identifying causal effects. And let me emphasize, we're very much looking for causal effects. We want to know if low-income kids growing up in more unequal places, all else equal. And so that all else equal condition requires that we have lots of other information that we can control for in our statistical models. Things about, you know, like I said, the person, their household, the state they live in. So we control for that. We run, you know, very many (laughs) regression models to really work towards building a causal story. Well, I encourage listeners uh, to visit Brookings' website, brookings.edu. Look for this paper, as with all Brookings' papers on economic activity. The description of all the data sets and the methodology is, is all in there. Um, Melissa, can you talk about uh, the academic performance question? Uh, Could uh, failure to finish high school also be about academic performance? Absolutely. Absolutely. So people who study um, the dropout decision and write about this, they're quick to point out that dropping out is a process. It's not something that someone generally wakes up one day and says they're going to drop out of school today. You see kids starting to disengage in earlier years, um, be absent, put in less effort, and eventually dropping out. And for a number of those kids, it's about academic struggles. And I think some really exciting work has been um, coming out of economics. There's you know, evaluations from that people have been doing showing that really intensive tutoring programs, for example, can help kids stay in school and reduce the likelihood that they drop out. And so our work is not contradicting any of that or or really, you know, suggesting actually it's not that, it's this. But the the you know, the evidence from our study is potentially complementary. So Yes, kids have to be performing to a certain academic level um, to feel like it's worth staying in school, but there's something more, right? They have to uh, feel like if they stay in school, they'll be rewarded in terms of economic success. It's worth it because there's a return to staying in school. And in fact, we look at a survey, a national survey of dropouts to see what they say about the reasons they're dropping out of school. And students gave up to 16 different explanations for why they dropped out, one being academic performance, weak academic performance. But then they also say things like they, you know, they didn't get along with their teachers. They just didn't like school. They needed to work. They had to help out with their family responsibilities, all sorts of other things. And what we see is that uh, low-income kids who drop out of school in more unequal places are less likely to be dropping out because of poor academic performance. Another way to think about that is that for a given level of academic performance, the low-income kid growing up in a more unequal place is more 
uh, is more likely to drop out. So again, there's something else going on here for a number of kids. They're not dropping out because their academic performance is necessarily so weak, but you know, it seems that they don't have the, um, the sort of commitment to staying in school potentially because they don't they don't see the point. They don't see them um, sort of taking advantage of of this degree and getting ahead. You use the term in the paper economic despair. Does that factor into uh, what you're saying? So in the data we have available to us, we can't literally test for despair or see if that's what these kids are feeling. But the patterns we're seeing in the data are consistent with this notion that kids at the bottom of the income distribution are discouraged by higher levels of income inequality as opposed to being driven by it. It's interesting because a standard economics model of investment in human capital, that's our way of talking about people investing in their own skills uh, or education, a typical economics model would say that if there are higher levels of income inequality, the gains to investing in your own human capital are greater, and so individuals should have a greater incentive to stay in school. But Again, what we're seeing in the data is the opposite, that on average, low-income kids respond to higher levels of income inequality by staying in school less often. And so the way we propose to make sense of that is by saying within this human capital framework, so it's still a rational individual making decisions based on what they observe around them, income inequality can have an offsetting effect for kids at the bottom. So yes, it might have this aspirational effect that the gains are greater and therefore they should stay in more. But it could also have this offsetting effect where a kid sees that he's sufficiently far from middle class life that it just seems like, you know, he, he's not going to get there. And so that has a, a, an offsetting desperational effect. We call it economic despair for lack of a better term. Um, and But that can explain why we're seeing this opposite pattern in the data. Now in the paper, you suggest some policy interventions. Can you describe a few of those? Well, we, you know, there's lots of things people have tried to address the high rate of dropout in the U.S. in particular among um, economically disadvantaged groups. And our framework suggests that it might be useful to think about these types of interventions along two lines. So on the one hand, kids definitely need opportunities to succeed. They need schools that are going to teach them and, and give them the skills they need to succeed in college or the labor market. They need to see that there's a path from high school you know, to college. And so the opportunities have to be there. But our work suggests that perceptions might also be really important. So if scholarships are there, they're not going to be very useful to kids who think, well, you know what, I'm not the college-going kind. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm never going to go to college, and I'm not going to succeed. And so we need to augment, um, you know, programs or policies that expand educational and labor market opportunities with programs and policies that affect perceptions and give kids a reason to believe that if they stay in school, uh, if they work hard, they will be successful. And those types of programs can take the form of mentorship programs, uh, high expectation schools, 
early childhood family interventions, you know, helping parents set these types of expectations um, and attitudes for, for their children. You know, we don't go into saying which of these programs have demonstrated success and how they compare, but those are the types of interventions that um, we would consider people look to uh, and remember that it's both expanding opportunities and expanding perceptions that, that low-income kids can get ahead, their own perceptions of themselves and their likelihood of getting ahead. Well, Melissa, thank you for coming in today to talk about this very interesting research in your paper. Thanks so much for having me. You can visit the Brookings website, look for the Brookings Papers and Economic Activity to find income inequality, social mobility, and the decision to drop out of high school by Melissa Carney and Philip Levine. And finally in the podcast today, our new Metro Lens segment with Amy Liu, the Vice President and Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program. Hello, this is Amy Liu. I'm the Vice President of the Brookings Institution and Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program. This April, Baltimore's residents will effectively choose their next mayor in the city's Democratic primary. Tackling inequality is at the forefront of nearly every candidate's agenda, and justifiably so. The tragic death of Freddie Gray last year was a stark reminder of the deep divisions that persist, and this mayoral election is an opportunity to right many wrongs. In Baltimore, inequality by race, by income, and between neighborhoods has increased in recent years. The median income for whites in Baltimore's metro area has risen, while the median income for people of color has declined to its lowest point in 15 years. More than three-quarters of the city's low-income population lives in a high-poverty neighborhood, and that share has grown since 2000. In other words, a very high and increasing proportion of Baltimore's poor residents live in neighborhoods that have little access to good jobs, good schools, and opportunity, limiting the future prospects of children and adults there. In light of these troubling disparities, the mayoral candidates have advocated for a wide range of worthy ideas, like vocational training, employment incentives for hiring ex-offenders, neighborhood revitalization, and support for minority and women-owned businesses. But the presumptive leaders of this historic industrial city should not lose sight of another and critical part of the equity equation, economic growth. Some might see growth and equity as an unlikely pair. For some growth champions, equity is social policy. It's not economic policy. But inclusion is necessary to sustain growth. For some equity advocates, growth is a driver of displacement. But growth is a prerequisite to addressing equity. Without an expanding economy, it's hard to create opportunities and investments for underserved people and neighborhoods and for businesses. In an environment with increasing global competition and technological disruption, growth certainly cannot be taken for granted. Greater Baltimore is not particularly strong on growth. The metro area is adding jobs and output, but the pace of growth is middling. More troubling, Greater Baltimore ranks 61st among the 100 largest metro areas in the growth of average wages over the past five years. This means that the region lags in producing good jobs, which may explain why people of color who enter the labor market are predominantly earning low wages. So what does it mean for Baltimore to prioritize growth and ensure it leads to equity? In my recent paper, Remaking Economic Development, 
I describe the key ingredients to continuous growth and prosperity in our cities and metro areas. So to start, Baltimore leaders must help their base of existing industries expand, creating more income and good jobs in the region. In Baltimore, the industries that generate good jobs, especially for workers without a college degree, include transportation and logistics, manufacturing, biosciences, and IT and computer systems design. The next mayor should organize the employers in these industries, understand their needs, and invest in the assets that will help them continue to grow. This could include investments in training a skilled labor force, identifying new technologies and research capabilities so they can continue to innovate, and building modern infrastructure that connects workers to jobs and businesses to international markets. To ensure that new jobs and investments reach people throughout the city, including those who live in East and West Baltimore, city leaders should promote transit access, housing choice, citizen participation in neighborhood change, and minority and small business entrepreneurship. Some promising ideas and initiatives already do exist in the city, so the next mayor should determine which of these can be implemented, better coordinated, or scaled. Crucially, the next mayor also needs to have strong ideas of what not to do. The city should revisit its tax incentive programs for economic development to make sure that such tax abatements don't undercut funding for schools or undermine the city's ability to generate revenues for other key priorities. The nation is watching what Baltimore does next in the aftermath of last year's unrest. The city has an opportunity to get economic development right, promoting growth and opportunity that brings promise to all of those who call Baltimore home. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahi, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.